Amen, amen. It is um, really a rich privilege, isn't it, for us as a church family to be able to minister in the name of our great God, Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to lift up his name, to honor him and praise him, glory in the highest. And um, I want to encourage you to, to be praying for our ministry teams this weekend as as ministry goes forth in the proclamation of God's word and the gospel and, and uh, all the singers and the, dra- the drama wor- uh, dramatists or whatever they're called and actors, would they be called actors? Yeah, that's, that's the word. And our, our parking people and all our different ser- servers here at, at uh, production people and, and all that makes this thing happen. You know, um, keep in mind we're not in the entertainment business. We're not putting on a show. Uh, this, is, um, this is ministry of the gospel. And, and it would be so much easier if we were in the entertainment business or this was just a show. But this is life and death. This is a, a highly opposed message. Each year as Christmas comes upon us or our Easter presentation, or anytime we have these concentrated outreaches and, uh, seeking to bring an awareness of the Lord Jesus Christ to our community, you know that we are in a battle, the battle of, of for hearts and life and death. And, and uh, so the enemy seeks to, to devour and to, to seize hold of, of uh, ministry. So pray for each other. Um, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not backing away or backing down because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? So we have the victory. And we know that. And so uh, we boldly move forward with courage and, and, and press forward. But, but knowing full well, it's supposed that every turn... And um, we experience that in our lives. And so uh, pray for each other. Really uphold um, the ministry in prayer that God might prevail, that the, the glory of God might be demonstrated, and that, that hearts and lives would be changed. And um, it's, uh, it's that kind of uh, time of year where uh, we need supernatural energy because people get tired. And uh, so we know you can count on your prayer. And also... Um, you know, last Sunday I was, you know, lamenting, of course, moping because my son was moving out and all that. You remember that story? Yeah. So, the Lord saw me in my low estate and blessed me with a grandson this week in exchange. So, I, you know, I can't, uh, I can't complain. I lost a son and gained a grandson. There's no comparison. Because, see, as you, as you all know, as you all know, Grandchildren are a reward for not killing your children. <laughs> so so it, it's a, a joy and a blessing that, uh, that we have this, this new little rat in our, in our family. He's six pounds, 14 ounces. He's, uh, he's great. Tough baker muscle, ready to go. What I'm about to teach you this morning is among the most vigorously and violently contested truth which will shock you because it, it ought not to be. And particularly as you, as you know the text, and many of you already know the text, you're wondering, man, I can't, I can't believe this is among the highly contested uh, texts of Scripture. But I want to give you a little bit of a historical, quick historical background just to set the, the climate of, of how vigorously this theological concept has been um, uh, um, uh, rejected and, and fought over uh, based on the pride of the institutional church, shall we call it, 
Christian church, I put in quotation marks regularly, and the passivity of, of, the mem- of members of church have conspired really to minimize the intended growth of the church. In fact, what we're really talking about, I'm not going to be uh, overly mysterious this morning, what we're talking about is how to do ministry. And um, it, it shouldn't have been held back, but it has been by the pride of, uh, and, and power uh, grab and hold on power that, that people who ought to know better and, uh, and simply uh, the, the misunderstanding or, or, or laziness or whatever of, of church in general, we have missed the point. But let me give you just a historical retrospective for a second on, on, on how contested this has been. Uh, in 1380, for instance, uh, John Wycliffe's in seeking to bring an awareness to people of, uh, of who the Lord was and, and, and to bring the, the message of, of the Word of God into the language of the people. In, in fact, 44 years after, he died in 1380, but 44 years after his death, uh, the then Pope had his body remains exhumed so that, that his bones could be crushed and scattered to make a statement that uh, John Wycliffe and his his uh, dream and vision should be uh, entirely rejected. And, and uh, can you imagine that in 1517 in England, seven people were burned at the stake for teaching their children to say the Lord's Prayer in English rather than in Latin. In, in uh, 1526, uh, William Tyndale translated the New Testament into English. Ten years later, in uh, response to the, the uh, opposition to that uh, for us, glorious thing. He was burned at the stake. Well, while he was being burned at the stake, uh, some took uh, mercy on him and strangled him. Uh, I want you to know that that much blood has been shed to prevent you, the people of God, from knowing the truths I'm about to share with you this morning. In fact, as recent as 1906, in a, a papal encyclical, called Vehemeter Nos, which was a circular, general circular to the churches of France, Pope Pius X wrote this, As for the masses, they have no other right than of letting themselves be led and of following their pastors as a docile flock. And so it has been, and so it still is in... in, uh, in, uh, in often in the general or the greater church at large... Uh, there has been this uh, chasm between the uh, people of God, the laity of God, and those who are in positions of leadership over the church. And in terms of how to do ministry, I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, because when the people of God have the Word of God in their own language and can read for themselves the way things are supposed to be, for much of the so-called alleged Christian church history, it has not been done correctly. And even in today's setting, in many of our our situations, and even within our own congregation, I think there are still uh, misunderstandings as to how we are to do ministry. And I want to share with you that this is how we do it, in best practices of disciple-making churches, because this is how Christ wants us to do it, because this is his word. And you can check me up on this. You can read it in your own language, and, and, and you can understand it and comprehend it yourself, and you can see if what I'm telling you today is true. But, but I believe that, that what I have to share with you is what God wants for us. Uh, let's open in prayer together, shall we? Father, we uh, have our Bibles open, and we want to um, have our hearts open 
And Lord, we invite you to correct us uh, in, in any areas of our lives or our thinking or our practice that is not in alignment with your word. Oh, Father, we desperately desire uh, you have revealed yourself and your will to us. And uh, Father, there's a reason for that. You want us to know exactly how we are to live. Uh, you don't want there to be a mystery about this. Uh, you don't want the arrogance of man and power structures to hold these truths from people. But rather, Lord, you want your people to know the truth. And so, Father, I pray that you will help me to... Uh, to uh, neither add nor subtract anything from what is presented here as your truth. And uh, I pray, Father, that you will bless it to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Reading together, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will, or better translated, let us in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament or connection, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of God to us this morning. Now, as I said to you, I want to talk to you today about the responsibility for ministry. Whose responsibility is it, really, in terms of best practices of disciple-making churches? This is our fourth in the series of sermons. And um, we are still in some ways in practicing middle age hangover from the middle ages uh, the varying, to varying degrees. And, and I want to talk about that this morning and, and address that. And um, there are senses, uh, statements that are made. We pay pastors to do the ministry. We may volunteer once in a while, but, but uh, we pay professionals to do these kinds of things. And in some ways, we are still holding on to the last vestiges uh, of, of papal encyclicals as opposed to the truth of the Word of God. And so uh, let's dig in with a, with a vigor and with a passion to see what God really has to say to us this morning in terms of best practices. And I, I want to say to you at the very outset that best practices of, of, um, of a disciple-making church, uh, disciple-making churches have a big-time buy-in to 
uh, to their calling or to calling. In fact, to personal calling. I, I want to build into you this morning uh, as a foundation uh, a real ownership of your calling in the Lord. Um, Paul begins this section, I think, with the uh, intention of, of pointing that out to us. I want to share four emphases in relationship to this calling. He says here, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then in verse 4, he says, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called. There's a real stress here on the idea of call. This is a calling. This, uh, what we're talking about here today in terms of the first emphasis is that you, each of you have been called to make Christ's costly investment count. We won't get out of the starting gate unless we really have a, a firm grip on an understanding of our great calling in the Lord. Uh, I don't know if we understand the, the, the awesomeness of our calling, that each of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ has been purposely and intentionally selected out of humanity to live your life for Christ. I, I don't know if you realize, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians um, chapter uh, 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in, uh, in uh, jars of clay or, or broken, cracked pots or, or however you want to translate that. We have this glorious treasure, this great calling of Christ. And, and, uh, and um, there has been great bloodshed for us to have this calling. Do you realize that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the language that Paul is using here, actually went to war to make it possible for us to be a completely changed person. As the choir was singing this morning, that great song, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, part of the lyric in there has to do with cooperating with the changes he wants to make in our life. I, I can't remember the exact uh, wording of how it goes, but what we were proclaiming with them and we were, we were agreeing with them in, an, in, a, in a great amen of our hearts that... That um, God with us, God in us is, is, is all about changing our lives and, and it costs Christ his life that our lives may be transformed and that we may be a completely changed person. And church history is littered with bloodshed, the bloodshed of martyrs. Paul himself says here, I'm writing from prison to tell you this glorious truth that you have been called into this amazing ministry. It, it uses the language here that he descended in verse 9. I don't know if we really understand that, that the Lord of glory, the, the second person of the Trinity, the, the everlasting and eternal Son of God, left glory uh, to come to earth to be amongst. He descended, it says, to the lowest regions, literally humbling himself from glory to the gory cross of Calvary that we might be invited into this kingdom with his grand personal calling. And he calls on us from uh, an understanding of this so that we might know who we are. He, literally, he has taken us, it says in verse 8, he has led captives in his train. We were once captive to our sin and to ourselves and to the slave market of sin and the kingdom of darkness. And the Lord Jesus Christ has left glory and has come down and taken us as prisoners of war. We were POWs. He's repatriated us into the kingdom of his glorious light. Paul says, this is your awesome calling in Christ Jesus. You know, um, if you go shopping at all uh, this year into the bookstore like Chapters, for instance, you will see shelf upon shelf of self-help books and self-help coaches who are, 
who are seeking to prop up a, a, a sense of esteem and self-love and all of that in people. And, and I want you to know that, that these books, that, 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 uh, what, what I'll call litter, the shelves of chapters, uh, are, uh, are nothing more than creating artificial props that mean nothing. But that's not so of Christians. When we understand who we really are, called in Christ, do we realize that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, it gives a description of who we are, and it says there we have been, that Christ has freed us from our sins by his blood, making us kings and priests. Now, that's no self-help book. That's no propping up self-esteem or self-love. That is a declaration of truth of who you are. Each of you who've been brought into the kingdom of Christ Jesus, you are a, not only a child of the king, but you are called a king. You are called a priest of God. This is who you are, Paul says. This is your grand calling. And, and unless you have a strong sense and awareness that you are called of Christ, we will never move the ministry of God forward. We will never be able to advance the kingdom of Christ in the way and the manner that he has for us. You've been purposed. You are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared in advance for you to do. You are singled out and brought into the kingdom of God on purpose. Can you imagine that? It's a grand and glorious thing when the king of kings would select you uh, on purpose and so Paul says here, make your calling worthy of the wonder of your salvation and its amazing price. Not, by the way, so that you can deserve the value that's placed in you, because that wouldn't be possible. It's grace after all. We can never do enough things and then turn around and say, aren't you glad, God, that you called me into your kingdom? And don't you feel grateful that you brought me, this wondrous person, into your wonderful kingdom? That's not it at all. It's that we are to take into account the value that Christ has placed in us. There's a huge difference. That according to God, you are valued on purpose to exercise your place in the kingdom of God. That's an awesome, awesome truth. And so, literally, he, in this grand work of calling us into his kingdom, is calling us to measure up to the fullness of Christ, not to deserve it, but to benefit from every aspect of what Christ has done for you. Don't waste your life, in other words, Paul's saying. Don't squander the progress that could be yours. Make every effort Every effort to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Don't allow anything to get in the way of the progress or anyone to devalue your character or person in Christ. Don't sell yourself off cheap. Don't sell your future. Don't settle for lesser things. Oh, I, I you know, I, I mean, this message is for everyone. It's a message for us old people as, as much as anyone else, but I, I, I so want to grab hold of a junior hire or a senior hire or a college kid and say, listen, do you have any comprehension 
of the grandness it is to be called into the kingdom of Christ and, and to be brought in as, king, as a king and a priest, this royal power that has been granted to you, this purpose, this intention that God has for you. Don't sell yourself out. Don't settle for lesser things. Don't let anybody devalue your life. Don't let anybody put any obstacles in the way of all that God wants you to be. Don't sell yourselves off cheap. At your age, when you are junior high or senior high or college, there are so many temptations. There are so many possible directions you can go. There are so many ways that you can change the, 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 the course of your life and, and have consequences to live with. And, and in this grand calling, the Apostle Paul is calling out to young people and older people alike, be aware of your grand and awesome calling and live a life that understands the nature and value of Christ's salvation that he has placed in you. This is what we are called to do. This changes everything. This is the necessary foundation emotionally and in truth for us to be people who, who move and advance ministry forward in the kingdom of Christ. And so he goes on to say in the second emphasis here, in, once you've settled that and you're calling and you really understand who you are and you won't settle for minimal, but for the grand purposes that God has for you, in verses 3 to 6 he says, I want you to make sure that you preserve or keep the unity. We are called to preserve unity, not to create it, by the way. We don't have to create it. Christ has already created it. In Ephesians chapter 2, there's a grand description. In fact, all the theology, starting from the very start of this letter and all the way through, is building up to this case of the practical. But, but he already says that Christ has made this unity. In verse 14 of chapter 2, for he himself, meaning Christ, through the blood of Christ, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, he, verse 17, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Therefore, we're no longer alienated. This is our unity. He has taken the Jews and the Gentiles who were at odds and, and he is now uh, by his death on the cross and by this, this uh, message of salvation, he has brought peace through his blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. And, and so that he has brought now people from every race and nation and tribe into this grand unity of the faith. Now, by the way, this is not some sort of gobbly, goop, mushy kind of, oh, can't we all just get along, kumbaya kind of stuff. Which we are, is being foisted on us in these ideas and notions of multi-faith communities. I have more to say about that, but I'll save it for a few moments until I get really wound up. But let me just say to you that if you look at the text, what kind of unity are we preserving? Keep the unity of what? Of the Spirit. Keep the unity of the Spirit. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Through Him, Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. We are held together by the peace that Christ has made. Uh, this idea of unity in, in terms of the church, the church is not called to some sort of ecumenical compromise, not at all. Not that we're all God's children exercising the fantasies of our own ways. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a very specific unity. Unity of the Spirit. 
Now, then he goes on to say this kind of unity is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That's the unity that we are called to keep, that Christ has already created. And we are to be, um, we are to, to be watchmen over this unity. We are to preserve this unity. To keep above all the one reality of God and his salvation plan through Christ and his glory. That's what uh, Jesus said in his uh, final prayer with his disciples in John chapter 17. That, that, that uh, they would be one as we are one, Father. And so he goes on to describe what these one things are. Very important for us. One body. There is one body. The church of Jesus Christ. One body. Uh, one hope of your calling, which is in Christ alone. There is one spirit. What applies to, to uh, the one applies to the all, in other words. There is one Lord. There is one faith. Uh, probably, I don't know, whether it's six, eight, ten months ago after church, after the second service, this guy walks into the church wearing garb that I knew was not Baptist. You know what I'm saying? And... Uh, it was, uh, in fact, not even in the grander cause of things Christian. And he comes in and he's searching around. He says to me, are you the, are you the pastor here? Are you the senior pastor? Yes, I am. Who wants to know? No, I just, uh, yes, I am. And, um, and he says to me, uh, I would like to take the opportunity to invite you and your congregation to a multi-faith gathering to... Um, um, celebrate uh, the, the unity of our cause in the Durham region. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to accept your invitation, and I'm not going to take it to my congregation either. And he said, why not? And I said, because there's only one faith, not multi-faiths. And I said, I'm not going to introduce my congregation to something that isn't true. The Word of God says there's one faith. And that one faith centers on Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who gave his life for us that we might have salvation. That's it. There's one faith, one Lord, one God, one hope. And, I, and he uh, just looked at me, turned around, and walked out of the church. I understand the nature of the kinds of charitable talk that goes on. And I also believe that, that we are to take opportunities to be charitable to people and help people and all of that kind of thing. But beloved, there is no such thing as multi-faith. Okay? That's, a, that's a, a nonsense kind of multicultural idea that's being foisted on us not by God, but by Satan. To try and give the impression that Christianity is just one of many possible options in life. There aren't many possible options in life. The Apostle Paul couldn't have made it more abundantly clear. There is one faith. And that's the message we proclaim. That's the unity we are to preserve. We're to preserve the unity of that one faith. That's a hard enough job for us as it is. That's what we're called to do, is to preserve within ourselves, within the body of Christ, a commitment and a passion to the one faith that Jesus Christ alone is Savior. That Jesus Christ alone is Lord of glory. Now, by the way, this unity here does not mean uniformity 
or sameness because we know there's a grand variety of methods and styles, but there's not individualized theology. There's already established here for us uh, an, uh, the reality of God and his redemption truth. And he builds the case in here for the reason for this grand unity. Our priority here is not about how large we can be or how influential we can be or how much impact we can make, uh, in spite of all of that, uh, uh, even though all of that is important and good. The, the call here for this unity, unity of the Spirit, is so that we can maximize the fruitfulness of our giftedness. You see, this unity entrenched in the context of this text is all about growing up into the full measure of Christ. We are to preserve this unity that we might grow in, in, in maturity until all of us reach the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's the point here. That maximize the fruitfulness of our giftedness so that we can, as near, we can grow as near to the full measure of Christ as possible. It's in this unity, from this unity, that we, main, that we attain maturity and experience the fullness and completeness of Christ. And we must never let go of that as priority one. There are all kinds of other good things to do in life and all kinds of other suggestions that people will bring, but this is our ministry call to grow each other up to the full measure of Christ. That's it. This is the ministry plan that God has given to us. So keeping that in mind, the third emphasis that comes out of this, if we understand that we are called um, to make Christ's costly investment count, if we understand that we are called to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, verse 13, then our third priority here, our third emphasis here in terms of calling is we are called to build the church. Verses 7 and 8 and verse 11 to 14. Now listen, let, let me make sure that you understand, I understand a few things. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a right way and a wrong way for a church to be attempted to be built. Jesus intends to build his church through his people. Now, I also want to say that I understand that church is not the bricks and the mortar and the walls and all of that. This, this is not church, all right? I'm shopping, shopping. This, this, is, not, this is not church, okay? This, this is something different. This is building blocks and all of that. We are called to be people who understand that church is people. You're, as I look out, I see your cherubic faces looking back at me, and you're the church, right? We've gathered in this building, this gathering place, this shelter, but we are the building project. And I understand that, you understand that, but I just keep wanting to say that because so often I know we throw around the word, I'm going to church. Well, we all know what you mean, but you know you're not going to church either just because you're coming to this building. We're coming and gathering the church, that's who we are. And so we are called to build the church. And, and we are not going to, to, to be about um, how many people or... It, it's, it's, it's going to be about every individual becoming a full-blown Christ-like temple. That's what this is all about. You can't see it in your uh, NIV translation, but three times the word measure is used. Therefore, it is the emphasis, I believe, of this text. In verse 7... 
It says there, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, or as the measure of Christ, as he's measured it. In verse 13, you do see the word measure, to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then again in verse 16, you don't see it again, it doesn't show up, but the word measure is used there. In fact, uh, the verse, verse 16 should really... Uh, complete itself by, by reading this way, uh, the proper measure of each individual part. That's the issue here. It's not how great our building or how uh, much our TV reaches or internet reach. It's not how spectacular our artists and our technical people are. It's not how slick is our programming. It's not how many soup kitchens we have or distribute from here. It is about the measure of Jesus Christ. It is whether or not the people of God are growing up to the full measure of Christ-likeness. That's the ministry. That's, our, that's what we've been called to do. And I want you to notice here very carefully, because we're going to talk now about the practical, how you do this, how Christ has laid it out for us to do. And the first thing I want you to notice here in verse 7 is it says, but to each one of us, grace has been given. Every believer, okay, everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ is engaged in the ministry call of God. Every believer has been graced, and as one writer writes, puts it, and, I, and I, I, like to, I like the way it's been put in, has been given a supernatural trade and spiritual effectiveness for building and servicing the new temple. Uh, the, the description here, in, in, um, which is a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18 and following, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. That, that is a picture of a, of a victorious king who has just laid siege to the enemy and has won the victory. And, and in this victory... He has released and rescued the captives, just like Abraham did when he went and rescued Lot. He rescues the captives, and he brings the captives back, who were formerly prisoners of war, brings them back and plunders the enemy and takes the resources from the enemy and takes them back to the homeland and then redistributes the plunder to the people that they might use the material, the resources, to build their great civilization. This is precisely the picture that is given to us here of Christ's choice to come and be among us, to win the battle, to win the victory for men and women's souls, to take plunder from the enemy, to take those people back, and to take them into his kingdom, into his marvelous kingdom of light, and to distribute the plunders, the resources, among the people of God for the building of the new temple, the body of Christ. That we might use those resources to build each other up in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God until we reach the full measure of Christ's likeness. That's the ministry plan of God in a nutshell placed here for us in Ephesians chapter 4. And it entails every believer understanding that you are part of this great plan. He has graced you, each one of you, to show up ready for work. That's what this is all about. And, um, and so we are, are called of God to this great and grand program of, of his. But then he talks here about a second group of individuals, which are really uh, also ministry functions that are standard requirements for all building projects, i.e. the church. In verse 11, he says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Now, there is a, some call this a five-fold ministry. I think uh, I prefer to explain to you that, that it's four. There are four uh, 
ministry functions here. And um, these, by the way, are certain individuals who are given as gifts to the gifted for developing their supernatural trade for building. In other words, um, just like some of you are electricians or plumbers or, or carpenters or dentists or doctors or, or, or lawyers or teachers and on and on we go factory people or uh, office workers or whatever. You have various trades with which you contribute to society. The, the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, by the power of God, because of, of what Christ has done, is distributed to each of us a supernatural resource to accomplish ministry, to do ministry. But certain individuals are provided to the church as gifts to show the church how to exercise your supernatural trade that you might accomplish all that God has for you in this grand building project. And in other words, certain individuals' service is to enable lots of other people to serve. And you have here apostles and prophets. I, I'm going to lump them together, and I'm going to suggest to you, which uh, may be a controversial statement, but, but uh, I believe that this, the text teaches us here that the, um, the actual uh, individuals called apostles and prophets were foundational for the church and are no longer, um, actu in actual fact, functioning in the modern or contemporary church of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is based on the scriptures here. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. It says here, God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In other words, there's a sense here in the text where Paul has already declared earlier in the chapter that these functions, apostles and prophets, were with Jesus Christ and, um, and that was their, their modus operandi. That was their description. That was their character. Apostles had to be people who had personally seen Christ. They were foundational to the beginning stages of the church and its ministry. Prophets, likewise, were those who were carried along by the Spirit of God, who proclaimed forth the Word of God and His intention, intended plan uh, for the future. We have that completely mapped out for us, starting at the first page of the Bible, and it goes to the last page of the Bible. So literally here, you have the apostles and prophets in your hand. That's what you have. This is the foundation of the ministry of the church. You already have that. There's nobody else who's giving apostolic statements or prophetic statements. This is the complete revelation of the apostles and the prophets. But I believe that there are two other ministry gifts that are given to the church, people who are given to the church as gifts to the church, and that is evangelists. I, I, I believe that evangelists, uh, office of evangelists is still existing, which are people who pioneer the gospel primarily to unbelievers. Uh, that could very well be missionaries or, uh, um, or other people who have a special gifting of evangelism. And then there is this, uh, what looks like two um, different people left over, but I, I want to suggest to you that the grammar of the original text really is, is leading us to, to the interpretation that this is one person, not pastors and teachers, but rather teaching shepherds. 
And so there are these four ministries. There's apostles, prophets, which was foundational for the church and has already been established and settled. There are evangelists who primarily work and teach the, the, the unbeliever, uh, leading people to Christ. And then there is uh, sh uh, teaching shepherds whose role, it says, is to equip the body of Christ to prepare God's people. The word prepare there is equip God's people for works of service so that... The body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what we have here is this word equipped, by the way, is, is, uh, is the word that was used when Jesus was, was, uh, was um, encountering the disciples, particularly the fishermen disciples who were working on their nets. And that word, that same word prepare here is the word that was used for them preparing their nets. Preparing their nets to work. Preparing their nets to function in the way that they were supposed to function, which is to catch fish. And so this preparation and fixing is the idea. So this office of te teaching shepherd, this function, this gift to the church of teaching shepherds is to prepare people or to equip people or to, to fix people so that they will be able to do what Christ has called them to do. That's this, this uh, reality. That's the ministry uh, of, uh, of the, uh, uh, according to God's plan here for building the church. These are specially skilled people to get people ready for action, to prepare and, and to fix them. Apprenticing people to use their supernatural trades that God has given them. So literally to feed and to fix people for ministry. All other things should be done by others. Now, this is where we, in our modern setting, have perhaps not been very careful. Jesus left, went to heaven, and he said, it is better that I go. If I go, the comforter will come and be with you. And then he said to them, greater things than I have done, you will do. He wasn't meaning that they would be more supernatural than him or greater than the Almighty God. That's not what he was saying. He was saying greater things. You will accomplish broader, more extensive things. Because if I go, you will stop depending on me to do all the ministry. And you will go from one corner of the earth to the other corner of the earth, spreading the gospel and doing ministry. His plan here in ministry is to give teaching shepherds to the church so that others will be prepared and equipped to do ministry so that it will spread all over. You see, um, the work of the ministry of Jesus Christ cannot be done by a few trained professionals. I mean, picture for yourself for just a moment if, if I was the featured soloist this weekend. I was hoping I'd get a different reaction than, than hilarious. Hilarious laughter. But obviously, we have a, a very gifted pastoral team here, but the six of us could never even imagine the scope of the ministry of this weekend alone. It just, it just stands to reason that, that the whole point of this great vision and great ministry is that all of God's people would be engaged in, in, in accomplishing the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what this is all about, the brilliance of God's idea. Now, I'm going to do just a quick little quiz with you because, um, to, to make sure you understand the difference between what a pastor does and what people do. So... Uh, 
I must say the, the first service caught on very quickly. I just don't want to put any pressure on you, but, but they caught on very quickly. They're a very smart, intelligent group of people. So for instance, you have your appendix out. Do you need a pastor or a people? You need a people. If you uh, need to know how to go and visit a person who had, has had their appendix out, do you need a people or a pastor? You need a pastor. All right, you caught on even faster than the first service. I'm very proud of you. If, if, if a coworker is asking you things about the Lord, do you need a people or do you need a pastor? You need a people. No, you don't need a pastor. You need a people. Too often we're like, I got to call my pastor. No, no, no. This is a people thing. You are fully equipped. You know the Lord yourself, then you can tell other people about the Lord. How do I talk to other people about the Lord? Do you need a pastor or a people? You probably need a pastor. Okay, so that, you see how this works? The, the, the pastors are supposed to be given the time they need to train everybody else to do the ministry so that the ministry goes out and goes all over the place. Listen, let me, let me level with you. When you're in the hospital, you don't want to see me. You understand what I'm saying to you? It, it's to your benefit that you see people after people after people. It's good news when people come to see you. If I come, it means it's Grim Reaper time. When, I, when I'm called in, it's like, well, they may not be around much longer, so you better come and see them. So it's very good news for you if lots of people from the church are visiting you when you're not well. You don't want me to come. This is how it works. This is how God's family moves forward. The brilliance of God's plan is to use a variety of people and their giftedness to produce maturity which preserves unity and protects the church from error. Churches that believe they should just keep paying more professionals to do all the ministry ultimately don't grow, and secondly, they fight. They always fight. You can tell a church is fighting. When a church is fighting, it's usually because they are trying to get all of their pastors or all of the certain ministry people to do all the ministry. Because you need something to do or you'll fight. That's just the way it is. That's the way it works. You'll, it'll cause disunity. And so we have this great model that God has given to us so that everybody grows up. That's the purpose of this. So finally, we are called here in verses 15 and 16, to build life from a dynamic duo of church or of truth and life and love. Listen, um, so that the kingdom will advance. Notice what it says here: you'll no longer be infants. This is critical for us. This is urgent for us. Those of you who have been in the spiritual, the discipleship, uh, discipling community stuff, we've been doing that real life discipleship. Know this: that that churches that don't function according to God's plan here have have mega amounts of spiritual children. And that's not, that's not the call. On, on, that's not going to grow us up. That's not going to be mature. And that's not going to protect us from, from the waves of, of trials and suffering and bad doctrine and bad teaching, craftiness that's out there. 
We will no longer be infants if we take God's program. We will be mature. We will no longer be tossed about, but rather we'll be held together. There's great contrast here. We'll no longer be deceived, but we'll be truth tellers. We won't be schemers, but we'll be servers. Because it won't be from men, but rather from Christ. And all of this is in the context of truth in love. It was our great God who brought disorder into order by what he said, by the truth. God spoke, and it is so. Our movement rises and falls on the basis of truth. That's who we are. And a few pastors can't hold this thing together. We have to be together in this, all of us, taking our responsibility and our role, speaking the truth to each other in love. Now, let me just make a comment, and this is basically uh, where we'll, we'll, we'll draw to a close for this morning. You'll notice in this text that it's truth in love. Truth and love should never be separated. The day that I stop loving you, I will purposely take myself out of this role because I will not be qualified to tell you truth anymore. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that the reason that I left the church before is because I didn't love them anymore, and that's, that couldn't, that's not true. It was a different call, a different reason. And likewise, the fact that I deliver truth to you is because I love you. You can't separate the two. You, you, can't have, you can't say that you love somebody, but you're unwilling to tell them the truth. And likewise, you are disqualifying yourself if you have truth, but you take it to someone you don't love. It will fall flat every time. I, I want you to know, just in case, I want you to know, I, I love you so, so dearly. I really do. I love you so much. I want you to know the truth. I want to deliver it to you because I love you. And that's what this is all about. It's each of us having that kind of love for one another and then sharing the truth with one another. That's the ministry of our calling. Our calling is to build each other up to the full measure of Christ by telling each other the truth in love, exercising the grace with which we've been graced to supernaturally resource each other to the building up of the church. This is God's ministry plan. And when you function according to this best practice, amazing things will happen. We won't become unglued in the storms. And we will move forward the grace of God in ways that we never imagined before. You know, it's stated that most churches, by, on average, only 20% of the people are exercising their giftedness and doing 80% of the work. I don't think that's true of Calvary. I think we're better than that in terms of statistics. But I don't think we're 100%. And the plan here and the picture here is that each one is graced so that you do the work of ministry building up the church of Jesus Christ. Best practices, churches that are disciple-making buy into calling big time. 
our own awesome calling, the calling to preserve unity, the calling to do ministry God's way and build the church, and a calling to tell each other the truth in love. Our Father, I pray and ask you this morning to implant in our lives and a correction in our practices. Wherever we have strayed or wherever we are straying, Lord, that we might ad adopt the ministry plan, the master ministry plan of our master and Lord Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of God may advance, that we might grow up to the full measure of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So until that day when Christ appears, we run the race his way. Ephesians 4 tells us what his way is. So many, I find so many people uh, are, are kind of in a state of paralysis, paralysis because they say, I don't really know what my gift is, and so I don't really know what to do. Listen, let me just say something to you quickly, but we'll talk about this at greater detail another time. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that you must discover your gift. In fact, in the Bible, the, 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 the list of gifts in the Bible is not even exhaustive. The grace of God is so expansive. Listen, God has made you a certain way. He has made you able to do certain things. What the grace of God is, is the Holy Spirit energizing you with supernatural power and resourcefulness to serve God with all of your heart, building each other up in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God until we all reach a measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to discover a special gift to do that. You simply have to do what God has enabled you to do whenever and wherever you are, and God will be praised. You will be exercising your giftedness, your graced reality. So all of you, let's get going. Let's serve God with all of our hearts where we are with whatever we can, whenever we can. And his name will be praised and glorified among us. And we will grow up to reach the full measure of Christ-likeness. Our Father and our God, we give this over to you. This is, um, it's a joy to serve you and to be here with God's people. And I, I pray that you just release us now into your kingdom work, Father, uh, with our great and awesome calling, purposed in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared in advance for us to do. Oh God, you have, you have graced us. You have empowered us. I pray, Lord, that you'll energize us with enthusiasm to, to go forth and serve you with all of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.